Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of September 10th, 2018. On this week's show, the New Yorker's Louisa Thomas will join us to talk about what happened in the 2018 U.S. Open final between Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka, and how we should think about the confrontation between Williams and chair umpire Carlos Ramos. Our Slate colleague, Derek Johnson, will also join the program to help us review LeBron James's new HBO series, The Shop. Stefan Fatsis is out this week, joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio. One of my favorite writers, Van Newkirk II of The Atlantic. How's it going, Van? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Very excited to have you. Um, I kind of want to just get right into this Serena Osaka conversation because I know we have a lot to say. Oh, yeah. It was a wild weekend. <laughs> On Saturday, Naomi Osaka beat Serena Williams 6 2 6 4 to win the 2018 U.S. Open title, her first Grand Slam victory, and also a whole lot of other stuff happened. Uh, Before we get into the details, I want to invite in our guest for this segment. Louisa Thomas writes about tennis for The New Yorker and for Racket Magazine. Um, She's also the author of the book, Louisa, The Extraordinary Life of Mrs. Adams. Welcome to the podcast, Louisa. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, Before we get to the conversation and what we all think about uh, what happened between Serena Williams and Carlos Ramos. Um, I'm going to just give the backstory. Let's get it out of the way at the top um, for those that didn't see it or hear it on Saturday. Um, In the second set, Ramos, the chair umpire, issued a code violation to Serena Williams. It's basically a warning for getting illegal coaching because he thought her coach, Patrick Murtagalu, was giving her hand signals from the stands. A few games after that, Williams smashed her racket in annoyance. This was separate. It wasn't because um, of the accusation of coaching. She was pissed off that she lost uh, She lost a game in the second set. So she smashes her racket. She's given a second code violation. The penalty for a second violation is a point penalty. Williams was less upset about that penalty than about the insinuation that she and her coach had been cheating. So back to that first violation. Uh, Here is what she said to Ramos. I didn't get coaching. I didn't get coaching. I didn't get coaching. You need to take, you need to make an announcement that I didn't get coaching. I don't cheat. I didn't get coaching. How can you say that? You need to, you need to, you owe me an apology. You owe me an apology. I have never cheated in my life. I have a daughter and I stand with right for her. I've never cheated. And you owe me an apology. All right. It was getting obviously very uh, raw and emotional there. Um, And it got more raw and emotional, as you'll see coming up. Serena kept talking at the next changeover. At the end of this clip, you'll hear her call Ramos a thief and you will hear him give her a full game penalty. And that put Naomi Osaka within a game of winning the match. You owe me an apology. 
Serena was watching her coach give her a hand signal. All right, Williams then called for the tournament referee to come onto the court. And here is what she said after uh, that conversation began. This is not fair, but to give me a point to lose a game for what we're saying, that is not fair. I mean, it's really not. Yeah. But you know how many other men, you know how many other men do things that are, I don't think they do much worse than that. This is not fair. There's a lot of men out here that have said a lot of things because they're a man. So I feel like one thing that's kind of like um, not been discussed that much, but is remarkable is just the fact that we were able to hear this conversation in the first place in real time, Van. Like this is not something that you typically, this is not the access we typically have um, during any kind of sporting event to hear um, a conversation between an athlete and a referee in the first place. But also just the fact that this conversation very quickly became about um, something that was much, much bigger than sports. Well, the first point is interesting because I think uh, one thing we've seen the last couple of years, especially of women's tennis, is sort of the professional miking up of the game, yeah. of taking these uh, much more intimate portraits and uh, and views of the game that are usually we think about happen with, with basketball and football, right? The big money sports that, that people – didn't have the same kind of interest maybe in tennis. And now they do. They're watching tennis the same way. They want the same insider access. Serena's a big part of that, I think. And you see now with the court being mic'd up, what's actually being said. Um, it was interesting because I think Serena definitely, uh, Serena knew where this was heading, seems like, um, <laughs> when she was uh, protesting. And, and and I think a sort of her uh, her objection that, this would not happen to a man, I think is valid, but also uh, that's something where when she is is needling, when she's having this back and forth with the umpire, um, I think she probably knew where that was heading and, and probably had that dialed up. Um, and, and that seems to be the, the case to me. Like this is a, a lot of this seems like a protest point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Louisa, I think that the main point of contention here obviously is, Serena receiving that first warning and receiving it as an accusation of cheating. In tennis, um, the notion that um, players are getting coached from the stands is um, that's something that's very common. It's a warning that's given uh, fairly often. And so I'm curious for your thoughts about how Serena received it um, and how that sort of instigated everything that happened afterwards. That was actually what was exactly on my mind when, as this unfolded, along with a lot of um, confusion, I I actually had the sense that Serena was um, sort of a little bit more bewildered and confused than immediately lodging a protest. Um, And I mean, part of that, you see, she didn't know that there was a game penalty. Um, She had to actually be told. Um, I, I felt like you know, coaching violations are something that people talk about a lot in sports because coaching is done all the time from the stands. And um, Novak Djokovic has been called for coaching violations. Uh, Rafael Nadal has been called, I think, more than once for coaching violations. I mean, it's sort of 
commonly known that this is done. Um, In this tournament, Carlos Ramos called both Djokovic and Marco Cecchinato for coaching violations. It was not something that um, was unheard of even for this umpire in this tournament. Exactly. So this is not, that is not a, a gendered thing in any way. But I think that Serena Williams has had to spend so much time in her career listening to people attack her character and question her integrity and sort of cast aspersions on her and sort of say, you don't have the right to claim your own success. You know, there's something, there's something wrong with this picture and we need to to blame you for something. And I, so I think that she, I imagine, I understand, I can't, again, speak to what's exactly in her mind. But as I was watching this, I could imagine that the suggestion that she was a cheater, that she would didn't have, she didn't deserve what she was getting, that she, you know, was being helped by someone else was a suggestion that she took personally in a way that someone like Djokovic would not, you know, that this was a kind of different kind of attack than it was on someone else and that she took it differently than they would have. And I, I felt that I felt that the attack was against her character, even though I knew that it was actually Patrick Mortagolo who was being issued right. this warning it, it, more than Serena seems not to understood to have understand that understood that she was not being, I mean, obviously she had this, you know, was given the warning, but Ramos wasn't saying you're a cheater. He was saying your coach is sending you signals and that's against the rules. And, you know, by, by the books, that's a, that's, it was a, that totally valid. There was nothing according to the rule book that Ramos did wrong. It it is true that many umpires sort of say, Hey, you know, your coach is sending you signals. You got to tell him to knock it off. And that would have diffused it, I think, immediately. Like, had he done that, that was a, something that others might have done that he did not do. On the other hand, he was within his rights to give the violation. But I also understand why she may have heard it differently than another player might have. I heard it differently. So I actually kind of respected her standing up for herself in some some way. Yeah, I think there's... So on that point, um, I remember... Uh, being sort of confused in the moment uh, when she was having the first discourse uh, about uh, the warning there. Um, I think she may have thought originally that her explanation that it wasn't actually cheating, that it was it was just, you know, whatever, whatever, um, that that had sufficed in making it somehow not a, a warning. But she had erased it. Right. And it she had erased it. And yeah, that, she does seem yeah. to have thought that. <laughs> and that when so that sort of ratcheted up when she got the point penalty for smashing her racket because that would have been a warning for her. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think that where it really gets out of control for me and where she, where this, I think um, it, it becomes egregious is during the game penalty because that's we're, we're having, this is not the realm of somebody sending signals. It's not the realm of somebody smashing a racket. It's much less, cut and dry than the previous two warnings and the previous warning and penalty you have verbal abuse that's something where every single umpire has the full discretion to say how far it goes what it means and to actually push back without giving a formal penalty a warning you can say you keep talking to me like that and and i will give you a penalty and and umpires do it all the time they have it back and forth Um, and you see it i think her point about the male players she used no profanity which is wild to me because male players 
often use profanity. You see some male players go up there and curse at the, the, the umpire in multiple languages and will have this sort of back and forth boundary setting. This is what you can say to me. This is what you can't. Right. You go past the line and you were getting a penalty. And Ramos said nothing at any Ramos point said nothing. about um, or if he did, we couldn't hear it. He said nothing about you're getting close, just like, you know, stop or anything that would have if she had crossed a line at that point, at least she would have been like warned about it. But he, it, it seemed like, um, hadn't told her that she was potentially overstepping. The thing that's I find so fascinating about the game penalty in that context, Van, is that referees in any sport, um, they're obviously judgment calls, but you're supposed to be this neutral arbiter and you're applying a rule book. And in this case, what he was judging is, is she hurting my feelings? Right. Or if not that, has she gone over some line that's entirely up to me and is based on emotion? It's based on, you know, my sense of whether this woman <laughs> is out of control. And that is obviously an incredibly fraught um, choice to make. Yeah, I'm going to give her a game penalty, essentially give away the match. Let's, let's be real about it. It's a decision to, uh, she needed to break there. She and to suffer a game penalty is essentially that's handing the match to Naomi Osaka, which I think does a disservice to both players. And that's right. you you basically say, I feel hurt for somebody calling me a thief, not using profanity, not even getting in my face, and I'm going to give the match away. That that's what happened, and it, it has to be framed that way for us to understand her response, her immediately being bewildered and 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 frustrated, and and also Osaka's response because she was in position to put this away legitimately, even though there was static uh, between Ramos and and uh, Serena, to put this away to get rid of all the distractions and show that she was better in this match than her idol. And that's something yeah. that was taken away from from everybody. There's a certain kind of irony here because there is this uh, line in the rule book that it's a penalty if you question an umpire's integrity by calling by suggesting that they're dishonest. And I think that that's what he took from the word thief, that he, she was saying that he was dishonest. The irony, of course, is that she was, you know, in some ways attacking his integrity and he slapped her with a penalty that basically put the match out of reach whereas she felt like he he was attacking her integrity and and she felt like she had no recourse um you know there's this kind of weird power um imbalance there i mean it is built into the system obviously one person is the arbiter of the rule book and the other person is supposed to follow the rules and Accept them, but there well, was this not weird to get too grandiose. But this is like the justice system, right? Where anytime there's a rule that's unclear and like rarely and capriciously applied, you get into these situations of there being power imbalances, right, Louisa? Yeah. Like he could do whatever he wanted to do to her, and people could look at the rule book and say, "Well, it's the rule." Yeah, I mean, and it's the irony here too is that the whole reason we have rules is that we're supposed to make them transparent and clear and everybody's treated the same. And, you know, I mean, that's the whole kind of conceit um, with rules, but here we are when they're not applied consistently, then we, then it, the exact opposite has it. it, you know, it serves to sort of reinforce this idea that there are um, real injustices rather than a kind of um, transparency. One thing that I um, found really 
fascinating looking back is um, John McEnroe. So John McEnroe has come up so much in the last couple of days of people um, talking about how his outbursts were worse. His outbursts were more profane and they were kind of celebrated. I think there's a little bit of um, kind of, you know, this this is like three decades back now and it's being romanticized yeah. <laughs> or maybe at the time at the time people were calling him a brat. But the thing yeah. that I found really interesting was I went and I looked at a piece that Christopher Clary did a couple of years ago, looking back at when McEnroe actually got defaulted. He got kicked out of a Grand Slam match um, in the Australian Open in 1990. And what McEnroe said there, which I thought was really interesting in this context was, the reason that I got kicked out of that match was that I was on the downside of my career and he had been knocked off the, it had been five years since he'd been at a Grand Slam final. He'd been knocked off the pedestal. Um, People weren't, he wasn't an idol anymore. People weren't rooting for him in the same way. And so he felt like he got all of the breaks and he was he did things that were so much worse than what he did in that match and just always got a pass for it and always skated for it. And so, Van, looking at this match, Serena is at the top of her game. She's at the top of her sport. She's at the pinnacle. She is a hero. She is an idol. She is singular. And she was treated, I think, like John McEnroe was treated in the 1990 Australian Open when he was on the downside of his career. And so... I don't know if you want to say that she deserves special treatment because of her stature in the sport, but that's where I think it's fair to say usually um, a, a player of her stature would get the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, superstar calls, right? Yeah, yeah it's every sport. I mean, and I think that's how it should probably work. We have a different bit of leniency. The the, the refs work essentially to make. Uh, they don't give an advantage to the superstar players, I don't think, but they have a different uh, level of engagement with them when there's a. You know, you're not going to kick LeBron out of. A you're not going to kick game. LeBron out of a finals game, right? <laughs> uh, with the second tech, if he if he set, you know doesn't curse at you, right? Like, uh, actually, the biggest parallel, the thing that's been on my mind the most, um, was after Nick Curios. Um, <laughs> basically, they, they said he got coached by the umpire in the middle of the match, which looked legit to me. That it looked like he was getting coached in that match. Um. They asked his next opponent, Roger Federer, what he thought about uh, what happened. It was a real debacle. Um, you know, it was they were talking about having the umpire never have another you know match again. It was this was, was a different a, guy, Muhammad Leani. Yeah, yeah. yeah, not not Ramos. Um, and Federer sits down very calmly and excoriates the umpire there. Excoriates him like, and, and at the end, you know, says this won't happen again. Looks in the camera. <laughs> I'm like, this is not on my watch. Not on my watch. You know, this is a player essentially telling, like, the, the tennis officials, the referee of uh, the U.S. Open, this is not how you conduct this, and you are going to fix it. This is him throwing his weight around, yeah, completely. And he's the next person to. Uh, he's he was in Kyrgios's next opponent, and that's what a male superstar player expects to have. That type of relationship where they know they are more important to the, to the game, to the match, than the umpire. And that dynamic has never really materialized or existed with Serena. Yeah, that's and really umpires. interesting. The question of whether or not she should have been afforded, it's sort of a, we take a left turn here because in the previous part of our conversation, we say, this is, you know, rules not applied consistently. And here it's like, well, should it be applied consistently? <laughs> you know, right. Should she get a pass? Um, it's, you know, it's sort of, 
it's kind of unbelievable that it happened on that stage. I mean, part of it was the occasion, right? I mean, if this had happened even to Serena in a first round match, it would be a huge hubbub, but it wouldn't be um, the talk of the nation in quite the same way. Um, You know, I think it's pretty well known that referees in other sports, what's the phrase, swallow their whistle, you know, sort of. um, And and so the idea- We could at least be grateful that he didn't blow a whistle. That would would have escalated things even more. That's that's one thing I am grateful (laughs) about tennis. (laughs) No whistle. That's actually related to something that not a lot of people are talking about though, is the role of the crowd in all of this. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because I really do feel like part of what ramped her up was this incredibly ugly sound of these boos. You know, and and it was creating this tension feel filled, you know, amped up atmosphere where she was and she was getting more and more agitated and the crowd was becoming more and more agitated. And I think that they did have a role in this. And also, um, you know, what the crowd did in the trophy ceremony to Naomi Osaka and when, and when she won was just I thought it was appalling. I mean, I understood that it, I understood that they were unhappy and that something wrong had happened and in their eyes and in many eyes and the eyes of Serena. But, you know, a first time grand slam slam winner is supposed to have this fairy tale moment where they get to celebrate, they get to experience this adulation of the crowd. And Osaka didn't have that. Instead, this incredibly ugly sound was in her ears and it affected her. It obviously affected her. She was in tears. And that as much as anything was this was part of, the travesty of this whole situation. I mean, it, it broke my heart. It made me feel sick, that sound. And I think you see Serena sort of realize during the ceremony what's happening. And she's trying to protect uh, Osaka now. Uh, Why don't we listen yeah. to that clip? We've got that, uh, we, we've got that queued up. And I know, I know you guys were here rooting and I was rooting too, but let's make this the best moment we can. And, We'll, we'll get through it, but um, let's give everyone the credit where credit's due, and let's not boo anymore. We, we just, we're going we're gonna to get through this, and let's be positive. So, um, congratulations, Naomi. No more booing. Yeah, it, it's, it's rough there, because Naomi Osaka, I mean, number one, like we said, this is her first slam win. She is a rising star in tennis. Uh, she expects, I believe, especially on hard courts, especially at the U.S. Open, to be a contender every year now. This is going to be her court, I think, in a couple of years. And it's it's sad to see it starting that way. Um, American tennis fans. It, it's interesting uh, watching as the tennis fan uh, fandom has expanded. Um how differently American fans react to things like this than they would at other uh, slam events. Um, also, watching the men's final between Djokovic and uh, Juan Martín del Potro, you saw fans regularly uh, cheering during Djokovic's serve, uh, sort of setting, putting him off balance. You, you, things like that are sort of accepted at the U.S. Open that wouldn't be accepted by the yeah. crowd elsewhere, um, which is an interesting, interesting dynamic. Um, but that... that uh, you have to give it to Os- to Naomi Osaka there. And the crowd, I believe, when she's playing next year, um, when she's come back to defend that title, uh, they know her now. And th- they'll hear a lot more of her story and be, it seems to me, uh, much more partisan in her favor next time. Yeah. So I feel like it's inarguable that 
what happened happened as far as like how Serena reacted because she was losing the match. Um, I think if she was winning, she would have been able to shrug off um, the coaching call. She obviously wouldn't have smashed the racket if she was playing really well and was, um, you know, she smashed the racket because, you know, she had a lead in the second set and then she lost it. Um, So I think it's hard to think of examples of an athlete really going after a referee in situations where they were winning, whatever, whatever sport it is, that, that part seems clear to me. But, um, you know, in the piece that I wrote over the weekend, I was a little bit more critical of Serena's behavior than, than some other folks. Um, looking at her history at the U S open, there have been a couple other cases. There was the one where, she told, uh, you know, a, a lines woman accused her of saying that I want to kill you. Another case, she went after um, the chair umpire for calling her for a hindrance. That was in 2011 and saying that you're ugly inside. And if you we cross paths in the hallway, don't look at me. Um, and I felt like it was important to kind of look at the history and the context of, um, you know, Serena's career and just the things that she had the things that she had done in the past um and sort of examine it through that lens and also look at the history of what ramos had done as far as this is a guy who's a stickler he's called you know andy murray for uh you know ticky tack stuff he's called novak Djokovic for ticky tack stuff um and i felt like the thing that made me uncomfortable was that in the response to the piece I felt like there are a lot of white men who are cheering me on and saying, this was the best piece I read. This is so fair. This is so neutral. And then the response that I got from people who, who didn't like the piece or thought it was unfair were from um, people of color and women. And so um, I don't want to think that what I wrote was because I'm a white man. Um, it is what I believe and what I I thought. But I'm just curious for you guys' thoughts about kind of how identity plays into how we saw what happened. Well, I actually, it's interesting because I think you're right that it's important to place this in, into the proper context. Um, I think it does matter that Ramos has a history of calling things by the book um, because, you know, sexism is a pretty serious charge. And I think that this is an umpire who has called a lot of, you know, the ticky tack stuff on men. That's pretty obvious. Um, and so maybe he doesn't deserve to be so quickly labeled as a, a sexist. Maybe he is. Um, well, it could be a sexist act without yeah. him being um, conscious of it as well. But, but it's also true that I found myself reaching for a different context. And that's what's interesting to me here. Um, because I know that there was this context of Serena having these, um, you know, confrontations with umpires and, and, we all know that Serena is a really sore loser. Um, this is not a controversial thing. Um, she's, I mean, she has been a gracious loser and she's becoming increasingly um, gracious in the pre in the past couple of years. But this is a woman who absolutely hates to lose. And that is part of her fire and part of what has made her so great. But um, there is a code in tennis that you are supposed to be a good, you know, sportsman. And it matters that the word is sportsman, probably. I mean, this yeah. is a sport with a history of, of this kind of gentility, um, which is, has its root in a kind of Victorian ethos. Um, and 
Serena doesn't fit into that. Um, and so therefore is a kind of, she does not fit into that code in quite the same way. Um, I, I found myself reaching for a different context, which is, like I said, at the beginning of, of our conversation, I found myself hearing or remembering not the instances of her, you know, threatening to shove a ball down a throat and, and being really kind of angry in that fierce way that she can be. But I found myself hearing some of the slights that she's heard before that are attacks on her and that I, thinking about all of the stuff that she's had to go through and how it must, you know, she has to carry that all the time and how that particular attack, you know, just made her snap. And a lot of people, I was really interested. A lot of people got really upset that she invoked her daughter, you know, that her daughter had nothing to do with this. And this was a totally unfair call. And she was, you know, grabbing for like pity points here, I guess. Well, I, and I, to, to just be um, transparent, I mentioned that in my piece that I thought it was, I don't think I was outraged by it, but I thought that that was an odd thing to mention in that moment. I will, I will. To me, it totally it. made sense. <laughs> yeah. Because I have a young daughter yep. and, and, and to me, the attack on her integrity really mattered because she was saying, you know what? Like I am not a bad person here and I have been constantly labeled as this monster or this person who doesn't deserve what she gets or is a selfish person and an arrogant person and a, 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 you know, this racialized, sexualized, you know, this, the kind of stuff that she, people say about her. And I kind of felt like the reaction to my piece somewhat reinforced some of these things because people seem so emotional, you know, she just touches this, these buttons. And so therefore what, she was doing and defending herself wasn't just like, Oh, you made a bad call and you're a cheater. And I mean, you're not, sorry, no, not a cheater. It was a slip. You're a thief, but I have to stand up here and I'm, I have to defend myself and I have to defend my honor and my family's honor and my community's honor. And like, this is a really serious charge you're making against me. And, and that's why I felt like she heard it differently than Djokovic would have heard it earlier right. and why it meant something to her to be a mother in that context. And that's why it didn't feel egregious to me in the same way that it clearly felt to a lot of people. You are not alone in saying <laughs> that was I didn't think, I didn't say it was egregious. It just it just stood out for me. But that <laughs> but was other really people did, you know, it, was, so. it was it's great to hear you with that explanation. That makes a lot of sense. Fan. Yeah, I echo a lot of those points. Uh, it's impossible for me um if you Really try to get inside Serena's headspace, try to put her, yourself in her shoes, as impossible as that is uh, to do. You look at the most common criticisms that have been levied against Serena Williams over the course of her career. The one is, I think she's documented this, the fact that she is constantly targeted by random doping tests. Random, quote unquote. Um, the fact that. I'm actually going to cut in there. Actually, they've, yeah. they've actually shown that like that's actually a much more complicated story. Okay, she's that's been targeted. much more complicated. The, the, there's a whole ITF element to this, so it's mm-hmm. actually not as it's not what it seems at first. That's why well, I interrupt. Well, you but. are the expert. <laughs> she defer. she perceives that she she's perceives so. Being yes, she does perceive so. Yeah, but that perception is also linked to the greater conversation, right? 
the fact yeah. that you can't go, you can see, uh, I don't think there are ESPN talking heads or Fox Sports talking heads who win uh, Nadal or Federer or Djokovic wins. They, con- they bring up maybe, you know, look at him. Look at his body. Is he cheating? Is he doping? <laughs> look at yeah, he's too strong to play. Uh, they don't have the same reaction to him, uh, to to them that they would to Serena. The, it's there's always a baseline element among the the haters, and there are a lot of haters uh, that she is cheating, that she is doping, uh, that she is not even if she's not doping. The fact that she is physically powerful is somehow an unfair advantage to the game of tennis. These are real narratives that have uh, shaped and pushed back against her career since she started, since she was incompetent. Like these are, the, I mean, they follow Venus too. The fact that maybe these were too, these people were too athletic to uh, be playing all these uh, dainty women. It is true that um, a lot of people um, have suggested that other players are doping and with a kind of specific baseless attacks. Um, but what is different is that Serena's body to a lot of people seems like offensive that she is that she that it's unearned in some way or it's it's not right it's not natural it's like it's crazy I mean she has one of the most beautiful bodies in the world um and there's something that people yeah they call her a cheater I mean that's essentially what that's exactly what a doping accusation is. Right, it's no. all baseless. And, um, you know, and so it's, this is, again, you're absolutely right. This has followed her from the start. I don't know if you all saw the uh, cartoon from the Australian cartoonist this morning. Yeah. Um, it, it sort of brings everything back to a point. It shows uh, what's supposed to be uh, an image is supposed to be Serena Williams. It's a very sort of stocky uh, um, caricature a woman who has these, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to describe it without like going back to the old uh, racist Jim Crow cartoons. She has yeah. these, these giant lips that are like clearly exaggerated in the same fashion of these old, 19 you know 20s uh blackface cartoons um she is crying and like she's just giant figure like like having a meltdown her a pacifier is flying out of her mouth and and they show her the backdrop um behind her doesn't seem to be the umpire ramos does not definitely not seem to be naomi osaka it's a blonde woman who is standing (laughs) in front of a white umpire and uh, the, the umpire is telling her, why don't you just let her win? And that's the that's everything in a nutshell there. It's uh, taking this moment that's very complicated and has contours, like we just said, that, that deal with the context, that deal with Serena's whole career, deal with the fact that athletes and and referees in every sport have a level of theatrics and, and engagement. Um, that, that's a game beyond, within the game, right? And, and takes all that and flattens it, flattens it to this racist, sexist image. And that's what lots of people in this world, unfortunately, that, that it resonates with them. Uh, and with both of your pieces, I think you see the response definitely will, is going to fall along those lines. People are looking for any amount of somewhat, any, any legitimate criticism of, of Serena they can find, they will amplify it, exaggerate it. Anything that is remotely looking uh, to defend her, provide some 
maybe nuanced criticism of her, they're going to take that and, and try to tear it down. This is how it works. And that's the 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 uber context here, sort of that we that's the world we live in. Yeah. So I think that um when you talk about flattening things out, when I was writing my piece, I felt like what I was doing in in saying that Serena has been the victim of racism and sexism her entire career. I mean, we can go back to Indian Wells and the awful things that happened to her and Venus there. We can cite just so many examples of just everything that she's gone through in her career and how she's come through it really admirably and gracefully. And the fact that she has done so, you know, Rachel Hampton, my colleague, wrote this in a piece that we ran last week has allowed someone like Naomi Osaka to play in the U.S. Open uh, final. So I think we can, you know, stipulate that um, certainly. Um, but it just felt to me a little bit like, you know, what I was trying to do was I, I thought I was engaged in truth telling, like looking at here's what um, the umpire has done. Here's what Serena has done. Um, let's also look at the larger context and then let's kind of like adjudicate um, what what happened. And you can obviously um, place more importance, as Louisa said very eloquently, on um, you know the everything that she's gone through and the and the bigger issues at play here. You can place more importance on her history in 2009 and 2011 in the U.S. Open. But the larger point that I found so interesting in the aftermath of this and in people's responses to different stories is that you're almost disrespecting Serena to not talk about the occasions when, as Louisa said, she's been a sore loser, the occasions when she hasn't behaved admirably on the court. I think that by saying that this was something, that that this event that happened on Saturday was something that happened to her and was imposed on her, um, it almost makes it so that she's not an agent in this in some way. And so what I was trying to accomplish, I don't know if I succeeded, was just making her an active participant in this and looking at her as someone who, if certainly wasn't responsible for this because I think Ramos instigated it and I think he escalated it, but somebody who certainly did not de-escalate it and was certainly an active participant in escalate. She helped escalate it. That's what I, that is what I was trying to do is um, write about what her role was. Serena has achieved a certain status in our culture, which makes her on the one hand, an incredible target to some people and on the other hand, has made her untouchable. She's a legend. She can do no wrong. She's a Beyonce. She's goddess, you know. And and I think it's really important that we remember that she's a flawed human being and that there are flip sides to her competitive drive and her success. And she is very much um, an agent in her own life. And, and um, she's not perfect. And she's not um, untouchable. And at the same time, something really sad happened and it happened to her and it happened because of what she did. And it's just, it's kind of a mess, honestly. Um, she's certainly but, not a bad person. She seems like a great person and she's flawed. I mean, like we can have, it feels like, and we can have a more honest conversation. It seems like about how Michael Jordan is just like the most enormous asshole 
He's and, a maniac. And the world. Yes. <laughs> like, and like that is something that we accept with male athletes. Like it's so oh, true. This guy's like a huge asshole. And like that's uh, that's obvious, like because of course you need to be a huge asshole to be a champion. But also Exactly. And he's actually Funny, sorry, I was going to say, I, one of the conversations I did have is that, you know, it's funny that Serena's become this feminist icon, but, you know, equality will will achieve equality when Serena's allowed to be arrogant and occasionally petty and, you know, proud of her own success. Um, that will be the moment in which there's some sort of equality. It, I love gracious Serena. I love good loser Serena. I love the Serena that is above all this. Like, don't get me wrong, but... She's also the best tennis player in history. And um, yeah, if if she were a man, would she be afforded some more, some, you know, championship size flaws? Probably. <laughs> the argument she was making on the court wasn't, I'm behaving well, right? It was men behave worse and are more cool with it. Yeah, that's, that is exactly right. What is your final, final word, Van? Every time I see uh, something, uh, a controversy involving Serena Williams become something that the mainstream talks about, I think about the weight of what it must be uh, to, to be Serena Williams, to exist and operate in the space she does, in the game she does, and also in this uh, larger portion now of pop culture and society, right? You, we mentioned Beyonce before. Beyonce is a similar type of weight now where she has to, in real time, um, while actually being a mother of three kids, uh, while being a real person, be this sort of deity on earth. Uh, and also has to navigate um, people, women and women of color, especially their their need for her. They need her, right? They need her in a way um, precisely because she seems to rile up so many ill feelings uh, just for being a person uh, among sort of the internet troll Rush Limbaugh uh, sector of society, she elicits a response. And that's a macro response of uh, it's it's a, a multiplication of what happens in the daily lives of, of people who see themselves in Serena and Beyonce, right? And, and black women who... Uh, Working class black women who have never watched a lick of tennis, they see themselves in Serena, in Serena and Venus, and also now to in, in Naomi Osaka to an extent. Um, and they see these women who are forced uh, sort of to exist in a space that doesn't seem to want to embrace them in the way uh, that they want to be embraced. And, and, and so you have Serena now, who she is, I think, undoubtedly entering what I expect the last couple of years of her career. Um, she is in the legacy cementing stage of her career. If uh, it's not the last few years of her career, then she will truly be a legend. Yeah, She's she, like winning I mean, at age 50 years. Yeah. She could, uh, you look at Venus, if she has the same sort of tail on her career as Venus does, you, you never know. <laughs> um, but you know, I think she is entering sort of at least, if not the end temporally of her career, the twilight of her winning multiple majors in a year. You know, I think she she's hitting uh, the elder stateswoman phase of her career, which is great. And that's the legacy cementing phase. That's when Michael Jordan goes from being the asshole who punched Steve Kerr in the face to being the greatest of all time, right? Like that's right. that's where LeBron James is right now. And, and there's a different valence there for Serena because, again, she does exist in a sport 
that did not want her when she started, right? And and she means so much now to all these people who see a world that is increasingly seems to be out to get them. And what does it mean? Take all those things and condense them to that moment when she is now getting a game penalty. <laughs> I, I just cannot imagine uh, what it's like to to inhabit that realm to be expected to behave like a rational person in that moment. Um, So much of this conversation um, seems to me to be mortals, maybe uh, debating what it's like to, to really do something impossible. And that's something I always want, you know, to walk away with is, is we're having a conversation at a level uh, where we really can't comprehend sort of the forces that are, that are at play. I think that is a great, place to end. I feel very mortal right now. Um, but you guys were awesome. Uh, Louisa Thomas uh, writes for The New Yorker. She is the author of the book, Louisa, The Extraordinary Life of Mrs. Adams. Thank you so much, Louisa. Thank you for having me. Before we get to our segment on LeBron James and the HBO series, The Shop, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Van and I and Derek Johnson are going to review It Ain't Easy, a 2011 track that features both LeBron James and Kevin Durant on the mic, and which was just released this past week. Is it good? You'll have to join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year to find out. Uh, That is slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A couple of weeks ago, LeBron James's new show, The Shop, debuted on HBO. The concept is pretty simple. A bunch of folks who are incredibly famous sitting in a barbershop having a conversation about whatever it is they want to have a conversation about. Let's listen to a clip. For us as athletes, it is the longest, shortest thing that we can do in our life to get the maximum out of it. If you lose the joy of the crab that you're in, then you're going to cheat the game and you're going to cheat yourself. And then ultimately you're going to cheat your loved ones. And that's why I'm still doing what I'm doing because I want to continue to inspire not only the people in my household, but everybody that I can while I can. Joining us now to discuss is my colleague, Derek Johnson, who's a designer for Slate and who reviewed this show for Slate. Um, Derek, are you cheating the game? I am 100% not cheating the game. Thank you. Uh, appreciate that. Um, uh-huh. In your review... <laughs> I got the sense that um, you were just really thrilled to see a show like this that you'd never seen before. And it felt like really authentic to you and like a window into something that we don't 
um, typically see on television. Is that a fair characterization? That's very fair. Um, if you guys remember, uh, last year they did sort of a pilot version of the same um, concept for ESPN. Um, and I was kind of drawn to it back then. Um, it's kind of like, you know, the rough, you know, bare bones of it all. It was just Draymond and LeBron getting their haircuts and, and talking about, you know, a bunch of different topics. So I was happy to see it actually get fleshed out, something something bigger. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to see this kind of thing on TV. And what was the part of it that felt the most, I don't know, that you felt most drawn to? Was it the kind of black barbershop um, feeling and the feeling that they captured that correctly? Was it the sense that, these like really um, famous people whose like words we want to hear that they were speaking in a way that felt um, authentic that you just felt like a fly on the wall or is it kind of both of those things? It was both of those things. Um, I feel like the barbershop setting um, allows for people to be more candid when they talk. It's not like a um, interviewer trying to pry and getting you know lead towards questions, etc. It's a bunch of people just having a chat in, in a barbershop and it's, it's very much like how it is in a traditional black barbershop. Everybody's kind of talking. It's very freewheeling. Everybody can, you know, get their two cents in. That's what drew, drew me the most. Like, it reminded me of, of my childhood in general, watching all the older guys, you know, talk about what's going on in their lives. Yeah. I'm heading to the barbershop after we finish this <laughs> podcast. And yeah, this is exactly... Um, the, the the barbershop's always been that place for me, uh, the place where, especially going through life uh, existing in spaces where I was the only black person in some places, you always had the anchor of the barbershop, places like that where you could go and talk without uh, necessarily having a filter, without being representative of yourself uh, to the grand, you know, capital P people. Um, and this, this, you know, this show captures a lot of the dynamics there, a lot of the sort of, politics that happen behind uh, what people see when they see black athletes, you know, what, what, what it's like to have these close friendship circles. Um, the NBA is a really interesting fraternity to begin this with um, because the NBA is a really small league. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a really tight uh, group of people who we understand more and more now to be not necessarily, they don't ID necessarily with their teams, but with their friends. It's a group of friends playing together, and, and they have conversations, and we get to see that. Yeah. I mean, Derek, I'm curious for your thoughts. Like, the Black Barbershop, it's obviously um, a, a black space, and it's something, you know, I have not been in the Black Barbershop before. It's, like, interesting to me to watch this um, and to feel like I'm getting a window into something that I wouldn't have gotten a window into otherwise, maybe. Um, but I'm just wondering how you how do you think that plays into it, that in some ways this is a performance of like what's going on in a black barbershop for audiences that aren't all, you know, entirely black? Like, do you think that that affects the conversation or do you does it affect how you think about it, that this um, that the way that it's going to be received? Um, I don't think it affects it too much. Um, the only thing that was kind of performative in my eyes, um, they were all drinking wine in the barbershop. I never had a glass of wine. <laughs> I in never a had a glass of wine in a barbershop in my <laughs> I, life. No, I'd be too scared that my hair is going to fall on the wine. I don't know why. <laughs> that would look too natural for me. Other than that, um, I like that it. Um, uh, it's it's weird. I like the profanity. I like the way they they were able to talk um, very openly and freely. Um, Did you feel like it, John Stewart talked too much as the only white guy? He didn't, some people, um, I've heard from people that said it kind of bothered him that he was there. Like, why the hell is John Stewart just kind of sitting there? But I feel like um, he only dipped in the conversation when he needed to be. Like, he, did, he wasn't, he didn't dominate anything. 
Um, I've never been in too many barbershops where this is a random Jewish guy in the corner. But um, <laughs> but um, I liked his aspects on certain things, and it looked like they were kind of educating him on certain things, which I, I did enjoy. Honestly, that John Stewart is sort of is part of my uh, barbershop experience. Like I, oh. I go to a barbershop on uh, often on K Street, right down the street, um, and it's a black barbershop. You know, sometimes we go around the corner to stands and, and get a uh, you know a couple glasses of uh, liquor and come <laughs> back. Um, and there's always a couple of uh, K Street stragglers who have found themselves. Uh, 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 they see a barbershop and come in. And it's always like yeah. these. I love watching sort of the white guys come in a shop for the first time and seeing, oh, oh. <laughs> you see some people that get in and it's like, oh, it's a black barbershop. And then there's a, the, the couple who come in and get cut. And I think there's so this aspect of performance actually is not foreign to me either. Yeah. You sort of have it whenever you have a white person come in, you have a, a like, oh, you know, we're, we're going to have some fun. Uh, but also uh, like the, that's that's John Stewart. There are people who come in, um, some folks who are down, some people who, who come there every two weeks now. Um, and. and Seeing those folks in that space is always interesting, funny. That that's not a foreign dynamic, I think, um, to the uh, lots of black barbershop conversations, um, and also the idea that somebody somewhere is is watching you and and, and chronicling right. you. That that happens. Um, I want to play um, a clip of Draymond Green um, oh, talking Draymond. about talking about race. Draymond. Draymond. The reason we struggle as black people is because we don't know who we are. Say that. And so. I mean, if you want to be quite frank about it, white people know who we are. That's why they keep fucking kicking us. Why don't we get down with each other when we're in the same lane? 100%. It makes more sense. It makes much more sense. And you actually can become in control of, right. of our thing right. because we really creating it. The reason other cultures are so strong, like a Jew is going to look out for a Jew. Wow. A Chinese man is going to look out for a Chinese man. <laughs> like, no matter what. Oh, if I can uh, just Jews look out for moment, Jews, period. Yeah, but you don't do it just so yeah, But you know why, though? It's because they realize that they've been through something and they never want it to happen again. Right. Humankind is tribal in nature. 100%. So we also heard there from, there, there was Snoop in there, Michael Bennett at the very end, John Stewart and Mav Carter. Just wanted to ID everyone. Um, what did you guys make of, like, that was the moment in the show that felt like um, the least safe, right? Right. Right. That, that was the most, I think, uh, that was the tell where that people I don't think feel like they're performing or performative in a way. That's a really fraught conversation. You can and that see could people. have been cut from, yeah. the, from the show. Like, obviously, they had a huge amount of tape here and we only saw a little bit. Um, right. And so. Derek, I, w- I would love to hear your thoughts on that because that's just, yeah. Uh, number one, I think Draymond had been drinking. That's number one. <laughs> um, <laughs> he had been drinking a lot of wine in the show I watched. Um Number two, um, he was going somewhere. He was going to a, a, a place there. Uh, like I said, they kind of cut right before you know we knew what was they were going to say next. But he was he was in, he was going somewhere that um, is technically correct. But I think um, I think they stopped him before it got you know kind of veered off into something even even a lot crazier. But there was nothing wrong with what he was saying. Like he was he was on the path of saying something very very profound there. And I think that it's the way that the show is cut. I mean, I should just say I found it really entertaining. Um, and I'm going to watch all the rest of the episodes. Like I, I, I liked it and, and I want to hear more, but, um, I would have, I would have signed on for like another 20 minutes of that conversation and let him, like, let him go and see it go in an interesting 
place. And I think it's it feels like a succession of very short and punchy clips um, for better or for worse. And I'm I'm curious what you th- what you think, Van, about um, whether it felt a little bit disjointed and whether it would be it it would feel more authentic or organic if these conversations were able to kind of spool out and and kind of longer form. I mean, actually, I think the editing, at least in this episode, worked for me. Um, it did feel short, disjointed, more like vignettes rather than a, yeah. a long, organic conversation. We miss out on a lot of transitions on where things get from one place to another. But I imagine, you know, again, this is a problem of, of having probably hours of tape. <laughs> it's going to be tough to get through if we don't have some judicious edits. Um, it, it did feel, uh, I think they made, especially in, if we look at this, the Draymond um, conversation where they took moments that especially people who have been in black barbershops are going to identify with. They they take a moment where you have a, a Draymond going to some place where everybody's seen the conversation go before. A Draymond. Yeah. yeah. We've seen a Draymond. Everybody's seen yeah. a Draymond. Every time you get your haircut, there's a Draymond. The Oftentimes guy, yeah. a barber is a Draymond. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's and that, interesting yeah. that the barber is like not really a character in the show. The barber just kind of gets erased from it. That is the least authentic part of this because <laughs> oftentimes, sure. yeah, the, the, the again, I, I had a barber who was a Draymond and uh, it was, uh, I, I was often like, uh, you know, I'd checking my phone and mid, mid haircut to stop the conversation. Yeah. That this is, this is, but this is, you know, I think that was good editing that, that, that shows these, that people are familiar with this space and taking the moments that are most salient and most sort of common and bringing them out, highlighting them. Yeah. Derek, I'm curious for your thoughts on LeBron here. This is part of his um, becoming, I think more comfortable with himself and more comfortable being outspoken. It's also part of him becoming an even bigger brand and kind of controlling his brand. Um, This is, you know, uninterrupted. His media company is involved here, a partnership with HBO. Um, And there's, there's actually like kind of like a meta commentary within the show about LeBron becoming more comfortable with being outspoken as he's on the show where he's being outspoken. Um, And so I'm curious how you see this as part of LeBron's, evolution both as a spokesperson for the things he believes in and as somebody who who is just this incredibly powerful um, media figure right well um i should also um say I'm, i live in la now i moved to la a year and a half ago um Le- lebron is everywhere right now for obvious reasons he's like I, all i see lebron all day every day um and you know they're kind of getting hyped up for the new season and um, I've never actually seen LeBron in this light before, and it's, it's very good to see. Um, like I said in my piece, he's had a very, very busy summer. Um, you, you, see, you see him with his family. You see him opening schools, a school. You see him doing um, a bunch of different things in different, many different spaces. Like he's he kind of um, positioning himself to be um, something other than just a basketball player, and it, it's really nice to see. Um, on the show, he had he had so many different um, takes on different things, and you can tell he's um, – He's reasonably young and he's been through so many things already that um, it's good to hear him actually speak about it um, and him be able to control the conversation too and, and say whatever he wants in his own sort of safe space. Um, I enjoyed watching that. Let me hazard a guess, Derek. Mm-hmm. Um, and you all can cut this from the podcast if I am wrong. <laughs> You're from Brooklyn. Correct. All right. I can hear it. Can um, you hear it? Yeah. <laughs> 
I wanted to ask you one thing that's been in my in my mind um, since watching is, is sort of the the Jay Z element to a lot of this. You know, you have Jay Z builds himself into this character who his entire uh, thing is controlling his spaces, right? Mm-hmm. And now I think you see a generation of young black creatives, actors, sportsmen, you name it, who are who are trying to do the same things. Um, do you think there's a, a sort of a, a common thread there between uh, maybe Le- maybe LeBron becoming this generation's spokesperson, or maybe the pressure for being a spokesperson uh, is being reduced? Um, I don't think it's being reduced. Um, actually, it's funny you mentioned Jay Z too, because if you go back um, when LeBron first got in the league, um, you can find it on YouTube. It's very easy to find. You can find a lot of video of, of um, LeBron just hanging out with Jay Z. Um, we didn't know exactly why or you know what yet. I think back then there was like rumors of of Jay Z starting you know beginning starting a, a agency for for athletes and LeBron was kind of he was kind of courting LeBron. You can see him like hanging out with LeBron. You can see LeBron throwing up the rock symbol. Like I think LeBron was definitely influenced by how Jay Z moved and all of his his, his business acumen, etc. Um, I think it just is a natural fit. Um, I don't think there's any pressure for him to to do this. I think it's, it's sort of a natural what he, he kind of came into. And I'm sure, you know, he grew up watching some of his idols, whether it be um, athletes or other musicians. I think he's followed them as following their, their kind of their footprint. Um, so it's, it's very natural to me. Um, yeah. And this is, this is like the opposite of what black athletes have been told they were supposed to, what right. they were supposed to do to get ahead. Right. Right. Um, it, it's not just the fact that he's taken social stances, the fact that he is, taking them loudly it's the fact that he's talking about like what happens inside of black cultural spaces at all that's mm-hmm. that's new yeah billy hazley wrote a piece for deadspin that was like more critical than anything i've i've read on this and saying that people are naive in watching this show and talking about how it's authentic because it is this constructed experience it's edited lebron has total control of his image but i think that the point that you made there, Van, is the correct one. It's like, number one, it's like, I, I think that is like narrow in the in the sense that it's like missing what's revolutionary about this and like holding it to, it's like, this is like ratcheting up kind of what we're seeing on TV by like one level. And, you know, he's asking for us to like ratchet it up by like five five levels or something. But number two, it's like, I think especially as a black athlete and speaking out on social issues, you know, he talks about Trayvon Martin and raising black children in America and like having, you know, the N word, you know, spray painted on his, on his gate. Like he is talking about stuff that is so raw and so real that like, it makes sense to me that he would want to have control of how that's conveyed. And it doesn't come off like it's, um, you know, he's being careful or anything, but just, it's just totally understandable, and I think as a viewer, we're not being cheated. Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, brands are not your friend. <laughs> Never. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think we should always have that suspicion. Uh, we should always have a default uh, sort of critical lens when, when, when looking at anything, a major network, this much money you know, HBO is bringing to the table and purporting to show uh, what's happening behind the scenes in any marginalized community, people who are not being well served by money in this country, right? But that said, this is not alien to any, you know, part of the black experience. Lots of sort of cultural uh, cultural explorations uh, such as these that have happened in the past 
have been done with big money <laughs> um, and, and lots of ones that people like to celebrate. Uh, that's unfortunate in some ways, but that's how it goes. Derek, did you have any thoughts on that authenticity idea and the idea that we're being kind of we're we're being sold this image and we should be a little bit skeptical of it? I don't think you're being sold an image. I think you you are hearing it straight straight from direct from his mouth. And like, you know, I think it's super important. Um I was I was really taken back by how how um candid everything was on on the show. Like I, I was surprised. Oh, HBO gave them all this money to, to talk all this shit. And it was it was really, really, really um profound to me. I, I enjoyed watching it. Um I, I think it's 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 pretty authentic. They they didn't they didn't stray too far from anything as far as authenticity goes in my perspective. So it's an eight episode series. I think Derek and I were both confused. We thought it was just going to be like eight consecutive weeks, but apparently uh-huh. they're just going to like drop them at random points throughout the year, which seems like kind of an odd strategy, but maybe, I mean, maybe it makes sense. Like they'll probably put out like a trailer on social media and it'll like build hype for the episode. But the point I'm trying to make is I'm excited to watch the rest. I have no idea when I'll be watching the rest. Hopefully <laughs> HBO will uh, make me aware of when the next episode is on. Yeah, I think HBO is moving more toward the Netflix-ish model for lots of this stuff. Um, you look at the well, the Netflix old... puts everything out at once. Netflix model is just like, yeah, we'll like put out a next episode of Stranger Things and just like well, some fair. random point in February. But like a, a more, I mean, I don't know. I don't think there's a whole. They've completely deviated from the. You know, when the next season's coming. You know, when the next episode's coming from a lot of in a lot of shows, and they'll probably stretch this one throughout the season. Uh, we'll probably get episode eight in like. Eight months. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> All-Star Weekend. Yeah, All-Star Weekend. Yeah, they'll have a special All-Star edition. Yeah. All right. Derek Johnson is a designer for Slate. We'll put uh, a link to his review on our show page. Derek uh, from Brooklyn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for After Balls, and some of you will hopefully recall that last week I talked about college football's turnover chain as well as the turnover throne and the turnover trash can. I want to get uh, go back to that well one more time because on Saturday, Florida State debuted the turnover backpack, which is indeed a backpack that Florida State players put on when they force a turnover. I'm going to turn my computer around, Van, so you can see the turnover backpack. Oh, wow. And it looks like just as ridiculous as that you think is it awesome. would. It's actually much more sort of generationally uh, attuned, too, because backpacks are the new chains. Backpacks are the new chains. Yeah. Um, and the the guy, the, the unfortunate thing, the thing that maybe they didn't think through, or maybe they did, is that the backpack covers the guy's name. So I cannot tell you the name of the Florida State player, but he's like two-strapping it. Um, and he's just like, you know, looks like he's uh, put on a backpack to, you know, take classes at his fine university in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. So that is the uh, the turnover backpack. I want to honor that uh, uh, evolution of the form. So, Josh, what is your turnover backpack? Uh, my turnover backpack, Van. 
It is related to uh, obliquely the Hall of Fame induction over the weekend. Ray Allen um, got in and there's all this talk about whether he was going to like uh, get back together and be friends again with the 2008 uh, Celtics, that team. But it got me thinking more about the Miami Heat um, team that Allen helped win a title in 2013. Obviously, the instigating event for that was LeBron signing in Miami in 2010. Everybody remembers the decision, the special that aired on ESPN. But I would argue that, like, looking back at it now in retrospect, the thing that was much, like, weirder about that summer and about LeBron going to Miami was, do you remember the, like, welcome party, the victory party yes. that they had before they had even played together? Not one, not two, not three. Yeah, I'm going to get, that's exactly what I'm going to get to in a second. But it's like, if this was, like, a children's book, like, your, like, kid would be like, you know, this is, like, way too didactic. It's like, the... the just like the hubris of like going out on stage and being like, we're celebrating the fact that we're like here before we've even played a game is like uh, just kind of, I don't know if it was hilarious at the time. It's hilarious in retrospect. Obviously they ended up winning those two championships um, and uh, LeBron should not be criticized by anyone for anything that he has done in his career, but just the notion that we're like going to celebrate uh, our coming together is funny. It's funny to me. Um, And I want to play that clip of exactly what Van was saying, the not one, not two, not three. Let's let's listen to how that sounded. But we also know you three kings came down here to win championships. Not one, championships. Not two. LeBron, tell us about that. Not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven. So the people who listen to the show now, I'm a huge LeBron fan, um, and... I was rooting for him to win those titles in Miami. Very happy to, that when he won the first and the second. Um, but the thing that that had never occurred to me until I was just thinking about this yesterday for some reason is I think we can agree LeBron is like maybe the smartest basketball player ever. if One of the smartest, if not the smartest. And I wonder, you know, at the end he just trails off at not seven, right? The thing that occurs to me is like, was he, did he stop there because the Celtics won eight championships. Right. Is that like a thing that had ever occurred to you? Because like that, that is the, that is like the goal. If you're like the greatest player of all time, like what else could you, what else could you achieve in the NBA but winning eight titles in a row? Like that's what Bill Russell did. And I wonder if like LeBron in that moment where it just seemed like he was kind of like just saying numbers, just saying high numbers, if he was actually being conscious of like, I'm going to stop at saying not seven because my goal is eight. That occurred, that occurred to me. And I, I also was wondering, like, had anyone ever made that goal of winning eight championships before? And I looked it up and I found actually someone had. Do you remember the, like, De Bears sketch on De Saturday Bears. Night Live? Yes, like, yes, the Bears yes. fans? All right. There's an episode, uh, 1991, where Jordan came on. He was, like, hosting SNL that week. Let's listen to a clip of that. Gentlemen, the Bulls are preparing to defend their crown. And, gentlemen, the only question is, not will they repeat, but how many times? You know, I, I don't think we're talking about a repeat, a three-peat, or even a four-peat. That's right. We're talking a minimum eight-peat. So a couple of years later, after the Bulls won their third championship in 1993, they had this rally in Grant Park in Chicago, as one does when cool things happen in Chicago. Um, George Wen and Robert Smigel, who are in that that SNL sketch, they were there and they were wearing eight Pete t-shirts, according to the news stories I found. I looked on eBay and there's like not an eight Pete <laughs> t-shirt to be found. That's like going to be a valuable item. If somebody out there has an eight Pete, uh, eight Pete t-shirt, definitely save that. Um, but 
as we know, Jordan left to play baseball, 94, 95. Those years don't count. You know, I'm sure Rockets fans would agree with me on that. Those, those championships aren't real. Then he came back and won, won three more. <laughs> Fan is shaking his head. Um, then, uh, so he won six in eight years. Would have been, could have been an eight-peat if he had stuck around and had won those titles in 19 or, 1994 and, and 1995. Um, so this just all like fit together, fit together in my hand, like maybe in my head. Maybe that is the thing that binds LeBron, who has made eight finals in a row. And I'm sure nobody will criticize him for not winning all those. LeBron won the eight titles. MJ is going for the eight, Pete. Bill Russell, what do you think? What do you think of this theory? Actually, you know, when we were doing that, this is going to get back here eventually, I promise. When we were doing that really stupid um, sort of conversation about uh, the show from the creators of Game Game of Thrones uh, called Confederate, where we were going to oh, yeah. <laughs> imagine... I remember that. We're going to that imagine never happened, um, the world if the Confederates had won, right? Right. Like, it, that was, it was part of this wave of weird alternate history science fiction e fantasy uh content that's you know still being put out and one of the suggestions that i put out instead of doing this which is dumb <laughs> why not why not do an alternate history of the universe had michael jordan not retired what happens if he stays what happens if they win eight straight championships is the nba the same as it is today do we have an nba Actually, I think those are difficult questions to answer. Like, what if he wins nine championships and they like destroy the NBA? What happens then? Um, these are from the producers of Game of Thrones, right? Right. <laughs> what, like a post-apocalyptic <laughs> landscape with no basketball, where basketball has yeah. been outlawed. Because yeah. <laughs> and like also the alternate yeah. universe in which Michael Jordan goes to play baseball and is unbelievably good at it, right? And just like becomes the MVP and baseball and leads the White Sox to championships. That I'd be interested in that too. Oh, well, um, TV folks, get at me. Also, maybe for the sequel to Mike Mike Pesca's uh, What If anthology but just some ideas yeah throwing them out there um van what is your turnover backpack so we talked a lot about tennis and the u.s open uh today and i think one of the results that lots of people aren't paying attention to because nobody pays attention to doubles uh, is the, the men's doubles final uh, where Americans won the U.S. Open, which is a big deal, and it's one of the most dominant stretches by any nationality in their own uh Major is Americans often win the U.S. Open in men's doubles. It's ridiculous. And usually the men's uh, team that wins it, that has won it so many times, is the Bryan brothers. It's Mike Bryan <laughs> and his brother Bob Bryan. And they are, uh, they're twins. And they always win this thing. And they're like the greatest doubles duo of all time. Well, this year Mike Bryan won the U.S. Open, but not with Bob. He won it with Jack Sock. Now, what happens? Bob is out now because he has a, uh, I think, a, a hip or a knee injury. I think it's a hip injury. Um, and, and they haven't played together for a while. Mike's still going out there making money. He's still doing pretty well with uh, an assortment of doubles partners. Now, Jack Sock. And now. They won Wimbledon, too, I think. Yeah, I think this is their yeah. second in this a This is their second. They're, they're doing well. They are out here really uh, putting a good record together. The Bryan brothers. Up until this point, it's sort of uh, fallen off a little bit. They had not won a, a major in a while. What happens now? What happens? I want to know not what happens to the Brian doubles duo. I want to know what happens at the Brian family dinner. 
What happens there? That to me is, you know, I want to, I want, if we're talking about uh, uh, narratives, I want a, 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 an ESPN or HBO show that goes into the Brian family dinners, twin brothers who don't play together anymore. That's really funny. Like the, they are so tied to each other, both as an on-court duo, but off-court as well. Like, you know, twins are often really close, but like you get the sense just like in reading some stuff about them over the years that these guys were just like their whole lives were each other and right. doing everything together. Like the really funny thing, I don't know if you noticed this, that on Twitter, Bob is at Brian Bros and Mike <laughs> is at Brian Brothers. Yeah. Like that's their whole identity. That's how, that's how close they are. And that's it. Yeah. Um, I don't know how they parceled out who was the bro and who was the brother, but um, they're getting old, man. Like they're, if if they're not um, 40, they're like getting up to 40. And Jack Sock is like this young yeah. dude uh, who could potentially extend the the run of uh, of one of them. Yeah. Um, and it's just interesting. I, I don't know. Twins are interesting to me. Um, as twins uh, get older, as we have all these, you know, I, w- I want a show that looks at Mary Kate and Ashley. Like, what, what, what's, what's happening? What's the dynamic there now inside the family? Um, and, and the Bryan brothers being in the spotlight for so long, uh, being. This team, you know, nobody, lots of people don't even know their first names. The Brian brothers. <laughs> what what happens now when it's Mike and Jack? Are there, does Jack come over to family reunions? Like <laughs> that's what I want. That's what I want to see and find out. Now. The other thing that's really interesting is that Jack Sock has been so awful. Yeah, singles this year, like can't win, and is like clearly. I don't think Mike Bryan would argue. Like Jack Sock is clearly far and away the best doubles player in the world. Yeah. Um, and so I don't understand what's going on there. How you could be so awful in singles and so great in doubles and, and the same season. Yeah, well, we'll see how uh, it goes when we get the next season and then coming back around to the next Olympics, how that all plays out. I wonder if Mike is going to, like, you know, make sure that Bob doesn't get well too soon. Like <laughs> Drama. Drama. Drama <laughs> in, the Brian, in the Brian hustle. Yeah. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Van Newkirk, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Thanks for having me. Um, I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.